Welcome to Tech Intersect. I'm your host, Tanya Evans, and my life and work exist at the heart of law, business, and technology. Yeah, I've earned a few fancy titles and degrees over the years, but the bottom line is I'm a writer, speaker, teacher, and lifelong learner. And I'm really excited that you've joined me on this journey. So what is Tech Intersect? Well, it's authentic, empowering conversations with really interesting guests who demystify complex topics to prepare you for the future, because your future is now. And it exists where law, business, and tech intersect. Get ready to listen, learn, and leverage. Let's get started. Welcome, welcome, welcome to episode 31 of the Tech Intersect podcast. I'm your hostess with the mostest, Tanya Evans, and I'm excited to connect with you today because in this episode of Tech Intersect, I speak with Professor Kelly Knight. Professor Knight is an assistant professor with the George Mason University Forensic Science Program and also a STEM accelerator. That's science, technology, engineering, and math. As a STEM accelerator, she guides and mentors undergraduate students in the forensic science program and also coordinates the K-12 STEM outreach that includes the females of color and those underrepresented in STEM summer programs for middle and high school girls. She has such an interesting background and a really impressive expertise in the challenging, dynamic field of forensic science. And we talk about what, first of all, what forensic science is but also what it isn't. And she dispels myths about crime science investigations, especially given the popularity of the CSI shows. Uh, You might have seen one or 10,000. She talks about the pain points, but also the career opportunities for Black women in STEM and in academia, and also the future of CSI and how technology is improving capabilities so that students of today, especially Black and Brown women and girls, can prepare for the careers of the future. No more hidden figures in 2020 and beyond. A final note before we get into the episode, I'm hosting a free masterclass on how you can quickly transform your bank account and your business in order to win in the new digital cash economy and do so without getting scammed or getting lost in the weeds. So if you believe cryptocurrency is too complicated, too confusing and way too risky, My upcoming masterclass is for you. Just three years ago, I believed the exact same thing, but I've worked really, really, really hard to make it make sense so you don't have to. I've done the heavy lifting through the jargon, all the fringy buzzwords in order to demystify and clarify how to participate safely and also in a supportive, inclusive environment. And now I want to share what I've learned with you. So join me on Saturday, July 25th at noon Eastern time, or if you can't attend live, still register so that you receive the link to the replay after I finish the live session. I'm going to teach you how to set up a wallet. I'm going to teach you the differences and similarities between cryptocurrencies and currency issued by governments and stocks, what it all means. I'm going to make it make sense in one hour. Please, please, please join me. And if you've never had any experience in finance or tech, or you've had some experience and want to take a deeper dive, hop on with me for this masterclass and let's connect and let's take it to the next level so that we are not left behind in this fourth industrial revolution. Time to win, time to move forward. Okay, time to listen, learn, and leverage. Let's get started. 
Today, I have the great pleasure to chat with Professor Kelly Knight. She's an assistant professor with the George Mason University Forensic Science Program. She's also the director of its STEM Accelerator. The Accelerator serves as a mentoring opportunity for undergraduate students in the Forensic Science Program and also to provide K-12 STEM outreach for underestimated middle and high school girls. I love, love, love that. We're going to definitely talk about that in the episode. And so she'll tell us more about all that she's working on. We connected for a number of reasons. Um, I'm a fan. I'm an ID fan. You all know that I'm a complete nut when it comes to social media, but some of my most authentic and wonderful connections have been through that medium. And I was connected in particular because I'm fascinated with Professor Knight's work in crime scene investigation, also known as CSI. I'm sure you all have heard of that. You think you know everything about CSI, but she's going to tell us the real deal when we get into this. I know that I want to know everything I need to understand all of the TV shows that wrap up investigations in 60-minute blocks, because evidently that is possible. But first, I am thrilled to finally connect with you, Professor Knight. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So let's begin with an overview of your origin story and how you found your way to science generally and also crime science investigation in particular. Sure, sure. So I always credit my father with introducing me to my obsession with STEM and all things science. So my dad um, was an air traffic controller. He's retired now from the Federal Aviation Administration. But he always had um, a love for anything related to aerospace and um, airplanes and um, rockets and, you know, all of those things. And so he very early on introduced me to aviation. So we would build rockets together, um, Mm. airplanes, toy airplanes together. And I mean, I just really love how he, he introduced me to things that, you know, being a girl, a lot of parents Mm. shy away from, he wasn't afraid to kind of push past those typical stereotypes. I still was a very girly girl. I still Mm. love, you know, dolls and I still love dressing up. But he didn't let that deter him from still introducing me to things that are really normally considered, quote unquote, boy type things. Right, right. uh, Yeah. So he built me a secret laboratory in my basement. I posted a picture of that on my and everybody got a kick out of that. But that's what I really knew. You know, I want to be a scientist. I love science. And I really bounced around between, you know, what type of scientist I wanted to be. At first, I wanted to be a veterinarian. And then I did some work as a vet tech while I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And I was involved in my first uh, euthanization, having to put a Mm. And I cried harder than the owner. I said, okay, I don't think this one is for me. (laughs) Let's find another one. I don't know how this one's going to go. Yeah, I'm like, all right, I don't think this, I mean, I love animals, but I love them too much that, you know, <laughs> having to be there through the good and the bad wasn't going to be mm-hmm. something I wanted to do. But um, the thing that really drew me to forensics was in high school, in 11th grade, I had a teacher by the name of Miss Baldwin, and she taught my anatomy and physiology class. And she had in one of our labs, it was a blood typing lab. And that just kind of dates even how long ago this was because nobody's doing blood typing anymore. But it was still really cool because basically what the lab involved was 
we were given a list of individuals, like a suspect, a victim, and a crime scene sample. So it was set in like a crime scene type arena. And this was before the crime scene shows were popular. So we were really brand new to this whole idea of using science to solve crime. And that lab was just so interesting to me because, you know, I had spent all of this time learning biology and chemistry and all these other sciences. And, you know, a lot of times students don't understand the application. They don't get why they care. Like they don't get why teaching them, you know, all of these formulas and all of these things about these different molecules and, you know, so on and so forth. And this was the first time I really made that connection between science and the real world. And Mm. no, that, you know, everything that I had learned up until this point is actually not only used for a purpose and used in real life, but it was used to help people. Like people were being brought to justice and people were able to find, you know, the killers or, you know, their assailants or, you know, whoever had committed these crimes against them. And that to me was just so intriguing. So when I got Mm. to college, I still kind of was bouncing around with what I wanted to study. I started out wanting to be a doctor because I just think that was what was kind of ingrained in my head. When you want to be a scientist, people always think of the typical stuff, being a doctor or or a biologist or something like that. But then, you know, I realized pretty much in my first semester that that wasn't really what where my passion lied. So I ended up minoring in forensic chemistry because I had remembered that lab from high school. And so after minoring in forensic chemistry, I didn't go the chemistry route. And that was because I did an internship in a DNA lab my senior year. And Mm. that's really fell in love with forensic DNA. So that's that's ultimately the route that I went. So tell me about forensics and, and what a forensic scientist does specifically. It's a very specific discipline and it's really, really fascinating. So so let's um, unpack it a bit to understand what the day in the life of a forensic scientist might be. Right, right. So the most simple definition of a forensic scientist is an individual who applies a science to the law. Now, that can definitely mm-hmm. be expanded because forensics is way more than just science. Forensics is such an amazing example of STEM in and of itself because there's literally a little bit of STEM involved in all different types of forensic science. You can have forensic engineers, you can have uh, forensic scientists who use math for like uh, biological modeling or you know things like that. You have um, forensic scientists who work more in the tech arena, like cybersecurity or right. um, or that kind of thing. So it really goes beyond just the application of science. At this point, I would expand it to say really the application of any area of STEM, which Mm -hmm. is used to not only apply it to matters of the law, but even you can go a little further and just say, if you're trying to take something that's unknown or what we would call like a questioned sample or questioned identity and trying to figure that out by comparing it to something that's known, that Mm -hmm. can a a forensic science. That is really helpful to me because I've seen the term used. I uh, Not only am I an intellectual property attorney and professor, but also on the innovation and technology side. 
and I've developed an expertise, and I use that in quotations because no one's truly an expert in blockchain and distributed ledger technologies, but I've spent several years in that space, and I know that there is an area of forensics that has developed in the space Mm -hmm. in order to track cryptocurrency addresses Mm -hmm. to root out you know, nefarious activity that might be recorded on a blockchain. And they use the term forensics to uncover that, really following the quote unquote money or following the addresses in order to uncover. And what you said really made a light bulb go off for me to say, comparing the unknown to the known in order to put the pieces together to tell the story, if I'm if I'm saying that correctly. That's exactly that's exactly what we do. Putting the pieces together to solve a puzzle, just figure out how these things are connected. At the end of the day, that's really what any individual who's involved in forensics to some aspect, that's ultimately what they're doing. Really, really interesting. So I can imagine, given all of the TV shows, that there are so many myths that you must come up against not only for your students, but outside of that with family, friends and in your networks, what are some of the common myths that you come up against and and things that you have to dispel that relate to forensic science? Right. So usually when I tell people I'm a forensic scientist, the first thing I hear is like CSI or (laughs) they say like NCIS or, um, you know, SUV. I don't know all the acronyms. I know. And I just kind of laugh because I'm I'm hearing it now. And I mean, there's a couple of very common misconceptions that I see just from watching the shows. I like to watch them just I call it background research, because as forensic scientists, when we go to testify in court, the juries, this is what they know of forensic science. And so by watching the shows, it kind of gives me you know, uh, Mm. for knowing what I need to break down, what type of, (laughs) what type of misconceptions I need to break down, because I have to understand that they're making this decision often based off of what they know from television shows and comparing that to my testimony. So as a DNA analyst, one common misconception is that you always get a DNA profile every single time, regardless of the sample, regardless of how much was there. Um, You know, you're always going to get a DNA profile and it's going to be great. And the individual's (laughs) face, you know, pop out as soon as you put their sample in the database, like 30 seconds later. So that's a big one that I have to kind of dispel when I testify. And another one is that Forensic scientists are experts in everything. So, mm. for example, on the show CSI, the crime scene investigators will go to the scene, they'll collect the evidence, they'll take it back to the laboratory, and they'll do all of the different analyses on it. They'll do the DNA testing, they'll do the fingerprints, they'll do all these different types of tests, and they will, you know, interrogate the suspect in the process of it. So they're kind right. of they're doing all of the jobs, like they're doing the guy <laughs> plus the lab analyst plus the police officer, and that's like the furthest thing from the truth. Like in the in a in a crime uh, laboratory, there are different expertises, and each expertise has its own laboratory, and you're hired to work in that expertise and that expertise only. You don't cross train generally or anything like that. Mm. So I was hired. My title was forensic scientist, but I was hired to work in the forensic biology unit. And so all of my testing was 
within the forensic biology unit. I never went to a crime scene. I worked nine to five. I didn't, yeah, I didn't work, you know, overnight or anything like that. And I didn't do any type of chemistry testing or fingerprint testing or anything like that. I just worked within DNA. And then, of course, there's the over glamorizing of the right. crime shows as well, which especially for students coming in to the major, we have to really break that down fast because they see these shows and they think it's glamorous. They see the white suits and the Hummers and the fancy glasses and <laughs> quote unquote fun stuff, but they don't see the fact that we actually wear like marshmallow suits and uh, <laughs> we're generally walking around with like bodily fluids all over us. <laughs> and gross and you know you deal with stuff that can be emotional for you at times and you know you spend a lot of time at your desk taking phone calls and writing notes and doing report writing and doing calculations and doing case reviews and this is mm-hmm. the side of the crime scene shows you never see you only see like the fun stuff <laughs> you, you don't see right. all, all the crap that goes on behind the scenes You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. We hope you're enjoying this edition of Tech Intersect. Our conversation will continue in a moment, but first, a word on an exciting opportunity. There's a more cost-effective and time-efficient way to reach your leading-edge learning and earning goals to put you ahead of the stiff competition in this fast-paced, tech-driven economy. You need skills, credentials, and a fast track to a competitive advantage. You need it now more than ever, and I can help. Invest in the future you've always wanted, and in as little as three weeks, you'll be on your way to greater autonomy, control, and opportunity in your life. The Advantage Evans method puts you ahead of the curve with condensed, comprehensive online courses, curated content to leverage your current skills and expertise in order to succeed in the new economy, live coaching with me, networking opportunities, and a digital badge on completion. Upcoming courses include From Cash to Crypto, Buying Your First Bitcoin, and Register Right, Protecting Your IP, Brand, and Business. Ready for your advantage? Well, get on the fast track to learn and earn at AdvantageEvans.com. And now, back to the conversation. Right, it's the it's the fun stuff and not the crap behind the scenes. And then what you've mentioned, your interaction with bodily fluids and all of these things. And it, it leads, we, we are recording this in the midst of the 2020 pandemic, the Rona, all that's going on in the world. I'm wondering how has COVID-19 changed the path for forensic scientists in terms of engaging or interacting with people in putting together these pieces? The pieces are actually 
you know, have the potential to be impacted by the pandemic. So how has the profession changed in light of what's going on this year? Right. So that's definitely something that individuals who are interested in forensic science need to consider the fact that we are considered essential employees. We are essential personnel. And so, you know, there's no, you can just work from home kind of thing um, mm. when you become a forensic scientist. You are basically an extension. I don't want to say an extension of law enforcement, but you're a part of the justice system. Right. And crime doesn't stop because of a pandemic. And so there are still cases that need to be worked. And so the forensic scientists still have to go in, but they're implementing guidelines in order to still be safe. So like they're doing alternate scheduling, they've expanded the day. So everybody doesn't have to be in at the same time. They're still Mm -hmm. social distancing. But then of course you still have to like the crime scene investigators. I mean, if there's someone that is you know, that has been murdered or something like that, and they may have had the virus, they're still going to have to work that crime scene. I mean, they're they're still going to have to be there. I mean, at that point, I don't think the virus would, I don't think the virus should affect them if, they, if they're working the homicide. I would hope not. Right. I don't know a lot about, um, about viral biology. Um, mm-hmm. I'm guessing that it may not be as much of a concern, but the reality is it's still in the back of your head that absolutely someone is infected with it, whether it be the person who was actually assaulted or murdered, or whether it's the other investigator that you're working with or the police officers that show up at this crime scene, mm-hmm. the reality is any of those people can be infected. But it's just like, you know, if you're a nurse and you're going to a hospital and the other people who work with you you hope they're not infected because they're still going through the appropriate precautions in order to go to work. They're doing the temperature checks and all those things. But right. that coronavirus does not discriminate and it does not make itself obvious. So, you know, you have the asymptomatic right. people who are walking around. So at the end of the day, they're putting their lives on the line just like any other frontline worker. Absolutely. There were some reports. I don't have it in front of me now, but I will if I find it, I will drop it in the show notes about statistics or reports, I should say, from funeral directors mm-hmm. now who have you know, tested positive at unusual rates. Now, that mm-hmm. could be because of interaction with the decedent. That could be because you're holding funerals and all of these people are coming in. Right. Right. So the fact of something doesn't lead to the reason for something, as you know, as a scientist, far more than we do. The fact, you know, we are left to our conclusions and kind of putting those pieces together. But there's that, you know, leads to just so much that we don't know about the virus. Right. So my goodness, we'll we'll stick a pin in that. That's a whole other episode. (laughs) But. You mentioned something earlier that I also wanted to talk about because it really goes to the intersection of law and technology and science. And and that's, you know, the underpinning of this entire podcast. And that's about testifying Mm -hmm. in a court of law to, you know, as an expert witness. Talk to us about what that experience is for you. Yeah. So um, I would say that Getting ready for testimony as a student was, when I started at the crime lab, that was probably the one area of being a forensic scientist I was the least prepared for. 
because mm. I mean, no one can really prepare you for testimony until you like have done it. You know right. what I'm saying? So, so they definitely at the lab, you are required to go through a certain amount of training and things of that sort in order and go through a mock trial in order to be considered officially qualified as a qualified expert. Mm-hmm. Um, but even then, you know, it's just a matter of getting that experience and actually being in the courtroom and doing it for yourself where you learn the biggest lessons. You know, I will say my mock trial, my <laughs> I laugh about this all the time because my supervisors and my trainer did an excellent job at my mock trial because it was by far probably the worst experience I've ever had. <laughs> That I cried after it, and you told me they said that was that was done purposefully because we want it to be your worst experience. Like we want you to be able to prepare for the worst when you go on the stand. And in my particular situation, what they really taught me through my mock trial experience, and it has really followed me throughout the times that I have had to testify was the young lady who was selected to play the role of my prosecutor or my state's attorney who normally, because I worked for the Maryland State Police, um, Mm -hmm. normally those were the individuals who were submitting the evidence. And so they're normally the ones who were calling us to testify. And so what happened during this particular situation was the defense attorney was so good at ripping my testimony apart. (laughs) She neglected to offer redirect. And so when Mm -hmm. we got in the mock jury, basically, they were left with you know, whatever statements were said during the cross-examination. Right. Even though I was almost upset with her <laughs> at that moment, because right. I was like, I need to redirect <laughs> let me defend myself. Right. But there were two really big lessons I learned from that experience. And that's number one, you have to remember that the attorneys are just doing their jobs. It's not a matter of, you know, this person against this person or them against you. They're doing their jobs. And so if an attorney during questioning does certain things that takes away from the main purpose of, of your testimony, mm-hmm. you continue to repeat yourself to make sure that the jury understands the point of your testimony, because there may not ever be a chance to come back. <laughs> so that's great. Great yes. advice. Absolutely. So that was, um, those were the two main things with that. The attorneys are not necessarily against you. They're doing your jobs. And number two, always testify like you may not ever get a chance to re-explain yourself because we are there for the jury. We are there Mm. to go to them in the most ethical and unbiased fashion, what we did and why we did it. And we want them to have Mm. clarity about that when we get to the end. And so even though I... I laugh at that mock trial experience now. It's been very good for me because when I go to court to testify, if I find myself in a situation where I feel like the line of questioning is taken away from the point of the testimony, Mm -hmm. I will say instead of saying like a simple yes or no, I'll definitely make sure that I have a point where I can qualify my answer. I'll say yes, but, no, but, and make sure that I'm constantly 
reiterating my conclusion because like one example I give to my students, I say, you know, think about the fact that when I'm lecturing to you in class and I'm saying all of these scientific things, you all are studying forensic science and you're sometimes lost and confused. So imagine how it feels to be a juror who is being thrown all of this information all at once. And a Mm -hmm. lot of times when you have the forensic scientists come on, you have scientific information being thrown at you and they're they're forced to make sense of it and their decision may be literally life or death or you know jail time or no jail time for someone and right. so it's very important that you do the best job possible in explaining the purpose of your your role in the case so that they can make the appropriate decision that is really really important and thank you for sharing that that is Obviously, the lawyer in me is (laughs) supremely fascinated by that side when I think about experts involved. And and so I think the the profession is very fortunate to have you as an expert to come in in an unbiased way and just speak to the facts, but also to understand the process, because it's really Mm -hmm. not at the end of the day, not just about the veracity of what is being conveyed but also mm-hmm. the fact that it's, you know, it's a, a maze, that it's a process, that it's a procedure mm-hmm, that, um, you know, testimony is a part of it, but it's not all of it. And and understanding your role in that really is the best type of zealous participation to make sure that the, the facts are laid out sufficiently in a way that best supports a decision by by the jury. So, so kudos to you for that. Final question. I want to respect your time because I could do this all day. And I just looked up, I was like, oh my goodness, I have so much more to say. Um, <laughs> but this has been really rich and um, I want to get you back to your, your, your rest time. But you have done so much extraordinary work to support the, for lack of a better term, STEM pipeline. I don't always use the term pipeline because when I think of all of the brilliant and amazing people who I know, I know that I'm exceptional, but I'm not the exception. There are a lot of people like me. You you know, people out there in the world, you might not know it, but you see it on a regular basis as you engage mm-hmm. at the undergraduate and, and also through your other programs at the K through 12 level to make sure that science and technology and engineering and math is accessible to black and brown women and girls so that they have a fully realized opportunity in various STEM disciplines. So talk about your work there and an additional point, what what they have to look forward to. What are the, the jobs of the future that they may be studying to be a part of in the STEM realm? It's so used to having everything in front of them right away that we forget that innovation just takes time. I, I, myself, I get frustrated too. Why? And you know, this is being one of my best friends is, Hey, I talk to you all the time. Hey man, I'm frustrated in the fact that I can't seem to just get there in Mm -hmm. the next day, but that's just not how these things work, right? Innovation needs to be planned out. It needs to be very methodical. And then when it finally hits, that's when it seems like to everyone else that it, it sort of just came out of nowhere. But to you, you know, the amount of dedication that it took over that time. Right. So I am the director of a program called Females of Color and Those Underrepresented in STEM. 
And that started out as just one program. It was a middle school camp for girls of color rising sixth grade through eighth grade. And each day of the camp, we do different parts of STEM. So for example, on Monday, we'll do science workshops and Tuesday, we'll do tech and Wednesday, engineering, Thursday, math. And Friday, we um, we give them a chance to kind of bring it all together. And then we have a session where they can gain confidence in their public speaking. And we do a poster session. And the goal of that is to number one, surround surround them with other people who look like them, that um, that support their learning, who are encouraging, who um, who kind of dispel the false narrative that girls aren't interested in STEM, and to really approach it from a culturally responsive perspective so that they have a chance at wanting to like STEM too. Because a lot of times right. these students, by the time they're in middle school, they they've kind of been counted out already and no one has really gone the extra mile to push them and say hey you know you're smart and you're beautiful and you can do stem and you mm-hmm. know things you should do in order to pursue it and see if you're interested and so we try to provide that opportunity for them that's a little different from the way they do things in school because sometimes when you get to the middle and high school level stem is not fun anymore when you're in elementary school right. they do all experiments and then they start to lose that sometimes when they get to middle and high school. So we try to show them the magic of STEM really in an environment where not only do the do all the other participants look like them, but also our mentors and our counselors. Um, we draw a lot from our women of um, color in STEM student organization on campus, which I'm the advisor for. Mm-hmm. And, and we draw from them because we really want our participants to really see themselves in college studying STEM. Because again, Mm -hmm. that's something that's lacking when you look at books and just books in general that students are exposed to that are related to STEM. It's not a lot of pictures and lessons around people (laughs) of color in STEM. I mean, can you think of anybody in STEM that was a woman of color that you learned about at school? Because I cannot. (laughs) No, don't even get me to stick to lying. (laughs) And think of one. Not I mean, one. I only remember. Yeah, I only remember learning in terms of women of color, like Rosa Parks, Harriet Tubman. Yeah. You know, it's always the people who had to fight for their rights, but it's never. Right. Yeah, it's like the ne- it's never the people who. By the way, there are also all these brilliant, you know, innovators and you know people like Katherine Johnson. Right. Um, so that's just you know discouraging. So we try to help them through that. And now that grew into a high school program where it's residential. So the students can really get immersed in the college experience. And we focus a lot on college readiness and, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to provide, call it STEM social capital. So trying Mm -hmm. to provide them with a lot of the networks and the skills that people who are, quite frankly, (laughs) white or, you know, other not people of color, that's kind of a gift to them. And uh, we're trying to kind of bridge that gap for some of our students of color who don't have access to these networks. And I mean, even for myself, I wasn't a first generation student, but I was a first generation STEM student. And 
school, being a STEM student, that was a very different experience from my parents. So there were some things that I should have done in undergrad that I didn't know to do because my parents didn't know to tell me to right. do it. And I didn't have advisors or mentors to tell me to do it. Nobody was jumping at the opportunity to tell me <laughs> to do that. So, you know, we, we try to put those bugs in their ear, like, you know, pursue undergraduate research or, you know, these other things that nobody may not necessarily be in your circle to kind of push you right. to do kind of thing. So I'm doing that at the K through 12 level. And then of course, you know, I try to mentor as many young women as possible at the undergraduate level, just because it was, I was, I didn't receive that gift until grad school. I had a woman um, mentor me beginning in grad school and that was life changing for me. And I just feel like because that was granted to me, I'm just trying to pay mm-hmm. it forward. Um, and so I try to extend that to as many women as possible because that's really critical. Having a mentor and an advisor that can help walk you through the things that you should do is really, really critical because there's so much, there's just so much to learn. So, so much to learn. And um, exactly. And I mean, in terms of things that students should be looking to do in the future, I mean, I tell students when it comes to STEM, you don't want to think about what's needed now. You want to try to get a gauge for what's needed in five years or 10 years, because that's where the jobs are going to be. And that's when they're going to be coming out of college and when all of these fields are going to start exploding. So, of course, we know that there's a lot going on in the tech arena right now. So definitely trying to get connected with some tech mentors and picking their brain and saying, you know, what's the next thing? What do I need to get involved in? I know in the fall, we're probably going to have, I would love to see the statistics on this, but I'd love to see how many more new public health and epidemiology majors we're going to have coming out of this pandemic. Because I think now more than ever before, people are realizing how important those fields are. And I don't think they realize, I, I don't think a lot of students, they hear about like uh, an area like public health, but they don't really know mm-hmm. what it means or what do they know? Like they don't have the exposure to know, like, why would I want to do that? You know? So right. I, th- I think there's going to be definitely a boom there, but I mean, get connected. I, I would recommend for students Start doing some searches on LinkedIn, get connected with some tech folk, especially see if you can interview them, shadow them and just pick their brain. See if they're willing to talk to you about, you know, what are some things they think are coming down the pipeline? I know for us in forensics, again, there's going to be a lot of a lot of tech stuff that's coming out. Uh, Cybersecurity, of course, is huge in the DNA perspective. We're looking Mm -hmm. at um, all genetic genealogy. So now being able to use family trees and ancestry lines to start solving some of these cases. So there's so many things. It just takes a matter of putting that effort in to start searching because there's so many things that's going to be coming out that, you know, you you can do more than just the typical STEM careers, go beyond the biologists and the chemists and and those things. There's going to be very niche areas that are going to be needing to fill. That's fantastic advice. Uh, I'm going to do a little research and maybe I'll ping you after this and see if I can drop some resources in the show notes as well. 
there'll be so many opportunities. I, I have a speaking engagement coming up for Black women in science and engineering to talk mm-hmm. about, you know, what opportunities are presented in the future and how to start to prepare for that. I know I, I created my my current lane, you know, five years from now, I was not talking about blockchain. I didn't really know what it was. Uh, maybe four years ago, I had heard about cryptocurrency, heard about Bitcoin, sounded like drug money. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know where it was, but I knew that I wanted to figure it out because it was important that my students be prepared to engage with technologists and scientists and computer developers in order to solve the biggest problems in the future. And if right. you're going to do that, then you need to start today to prepare yourself. And in order to prepare them, I had to prepare myself. And in that way, I, I created an interesting lane for myself to kind of make myself indispensable because most people, no matter where I work, don't really know what I'm talking about. So that's awesome. Um, <laughs> so do that, students. <laughs> Agreed. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with me and uh, talking through this. It's the beginning of of what I hope will be much to come. Um, I've appreciated engaging with you on the interwebs and now certainly on the podcast. Can you tell people how they can connect with you, learn more about your work and, and, and things that are coming up for you? Sure. So on Instagram, I am at Kelly the Scientist and that's Kelly with just a Y. And on Twitter, I'm still working on my Twitter skills, but <laughs> <laughs> you got to raise your, your Twitter I game really up a little do bit because that is that is not really my arena. I'm mostly on Instagram, but <laughs> on Twitter, I'm starting to step it up a little bit. I'm at Scientist KK. Excellent, love it. I love a good trademark. Hit me up if you want me to do your trademark work. I'm happy to do that. Absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. Professor Knight, I appreciate you. Um, I love the work that you're doing, how you move in the space, how you are empowering black and brown women and girls in STEM. And uh, you have a lifelong fan. So so thank you very much. Well, it was really a pleasure to connect with Professor Knight and to learn about her work, especially her tireless commitment to increasing opportunities for black and brown women and girls in science, technology, engineering, and math. And it was really interesting to hear about what an expert in the field offers in a courtroom and testifying as an expert. So there's so many facets to forensic science, both in the actual practice of the science, also teaching in academia, and then serving as an expert in the legal field. That brings technology, business, and innovation, and all of the things that we talk about here with law, technology, and business at Tech Intersect. So this was a fantastic conversation with Professor Knight. All right. Speaking of winning in STEM and beyond, again, please join me Saturday, July 25th at noon Eastern time for my free masterclass about how to learn and earn in this new digital cash economy. We're talking about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, what blockchain is. If you don't know the answer to that question, hop on with me and let's get at it. So if you are new to the show or haven't heard me talk about this area before, my passion truly is empowering underestimated lifelong learners traditionally locked out of the tech and finance world to really take control of our finances and our financial futures to participate fully and confidently in the new digital cash economy. 
to make sure that you're safe, that you're doing it legally, and also that you're in a welcoming space and community. So you can stay ahead of the curve, create autonomy, opportunity, generational wealth in this fast-paced tech-driven world. Join me on this journey. I look forward to connecting with you. All right. Whew, that's a lot in this episode. I can't wait to hear it myself. That's all for now. But until next time, continue to shine. Stay in touch with host Tanya Evans via your favorite social media on Twitter at at Tech Intersect and on Instagram via the handle Tech Intersect. This podcast has been produced by Stephanie Renee for Soul Sanctuary Incorporated.